Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You know, I've never really had one of those radio shows where you just play music. <laughs> but it seems like it would be fun, right? And you talk a little bit, but then you play like a whole song, right? There are radio shows just like that. I've actually worked in buildings where there were three other radio stations that were just like that. But I, who have been doing radio shows for 30 years now, have never done that. Oh, well. Uh, anyway, today's Ask or Tell Me Anything, uh, 888-720-WNPR, would be the number that you would call. 888-720-9677. We got people calling in. We want more people to call in. Uh, 888-720-WNPR. There are really no restrictions about what you can bring up. I say this with some trepidation. Um, and yet, I also say it with great enthusiasm. Because that's the concept here anyway. You can just call up and bring up any topic you want. We have discovered... <laughs> <laughs> we have discovered that whatever is in the news, that's not what you will call up about. I mean, you know, it would really have to be some kind of overwhelming thing. But really, I- I'm almost convinced that we could have genuine, not counting Lily Tyson, genuine contact with extraterrestrial life. Like they'd be here and they'd be like at the mall getting stuff. And you guys wouldn't call up about that. <laughs> and I, I admire you. I love you for that. I do. I really do. 888-720-WNPR. Uh, all right. Let's take some calls here. One of, the, one of our proposals, one of our thoughts, because we're doing a little bit of rebranding. Have you heard that? Um, <laughs> I discovered if you say that, it just panics people. Like, what, what, what does that mean? Well, we are. We're doing some rebranding. And I was thinking that maybe this show, instead of being called Ask or Tell Me Anything, could be called The Way People Drive. Uh, And with that in mind, uh, here is Tyler in Shelton. So uh, obviously Route 8 is going to be an issue here, probably, in some way. Tyler, uh, you have the floor. Hey, Colin. Um, I am just calling because I actually called a while ago about tailgating drivers. Yep. And I just want to remind everyone, because it's going to snow tomorrow or today, that not everyone has four-wheel drive. I find people tailgating me when I drive slow during the snow, and it's really dangerous. But, hey, why not use this platform? Yes, well, absolutely. Um, I mean, I feel as though our anti-tailgating crusade 
that you and I have launched, Tyler. I think it's really bearing fruit. I think hardly anybody tailgates anymore. Uh, we need to make some stickers. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. I get tailgated all the time. So, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about that. You know, I teach down in New Haven on Tuesdays, and I'm really sort of thinking about this. Like, how, am I, I going to be able to get down there tomorrow? I mean, thank God for Zoom. I could teach a Zoom class if I have to. But, uh, but yeah, it's going to be bad driving. So uh, is, is there anything else you'd like to say about tailgating? How's tailgating on Route 8? Is Route 8, you live in Shelton is why I'm asking. I feel well, like Route I 8 is- I Oh, you're just in Shelton. Yeah, I, I work understand. in Shelton. Uh, I yeah, but, and, and I don't take Route 8 very often. I take 95. You take 95. Oh, well, 95 yeah. is like the worst road in America. I mean, it, you yeah. know. The thing, the thing, yeah. I just to say one thing about I-95, which is it's really one of the few interstates where there can be traffic jams for no reason. You know, it can be bumper to bumper for miles and miles, and they'll have one of those, you know, those little LED kind of, you know, big orange billboardy things that they put by the road, and there'll be a message from the DOT: a squirrel ran across the road in Rhode Island. There'll be eight-hour delays here. You know, <laughs> just, they don't even need a reason; it just stops. So I feel your pain. Is what I'm saying. Yes, constant struggle. All right, thanks for calling. Don't tailgate. We, we've banned tailgating. I don't understand why. Okay, boy, this is going to be a hard one. Modern monetary theory? Do they have even the right show? Hi, John from Manchester. You're on the air. Hey, hi, Colin. Uh, yeah, I, I would love to, to like do a program about modern monetary theory sometime, especially because one of the guys who's responsible for actually bringing that into like seri- a serious school study is Warren Mosler. He's a 1967 graduate from Manchester High School. I actually, my classmates. I think I know this guy. Didn't he like run? Was he like an independent party candidate? He did at one time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he like lives know, in. Does he like live in St. Croix or something? Yep, he does. He does. He 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 had a car company built built uh, like racing cars. Yeah, he, a, he owned a bank. He's a very, very eclectic kind of guy. Yeah, no, he's and, been uh, here. He's he sat in these studios uh, back when he was. Running, you know, he's a third party candidate. I can't remember whether he was independent or something else. I think it was independent party. I, I think it was independent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, really intelligent guy. The, the reason I, the thing that that gripes me so much that we, it doesn't get more coverage, is that so much of the debate and the, the talk about our economic situation is is based on a whole set of falsehoods about the way the monetary system works, and it it, it it's, it's infuriating. Well, I feel like I could be very effective in this role, John, because I not only don't know the truth, but I don't know the falsehoods. So I feel like I come in with a real clean slate, you know? I, well, I could. That's, that's, that's a good place, good place to be. But, you know, a real way to get up to speed on this, Yeah. Warren Mosler has a book. It's called The Seven uh, Deadly Sins of Monetary Policy or something like that. It's It's... Written really simply, it just says this is what they tell you, and this is why it's not true, and it, it makes so much sense once you once you see it. All right. So, what do you um, think out there, listening audience? Do we need a show about <laughs> monetary policy? Do you want a show about monet? Who wants a show about monetary policy? Show of hands. All right. So, anyway, thanks for your call, John. We will give it some thought. I don't really know. You know, our I'll tell you what our rule is here, and then we're going to go to Liz from Meriden. But our, what our rule is, is we can do a show about anything as long as we do it our way. You know, as long as we, we find a way to do it that would be kind of in our idiom. 
you might say. <laughs> I don't really know what that means. But um, so we could do a show about monetary policy. We could do a show about monetary policy just because we, and by we, I mean I, am unqualified to do a show about monetary policy. That could be the concept. An unqualified person does a show about monetary policy. Oh, I think it's worth, you know, worth putting in the tickler file, as they used to say. All right, here's Liz from Meriden. Hi, Liz. Hi, Colin. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine, Liz. Excellent. Um, I'm calling because I'm very excited about, I'll say her name, Jill Bolte-Taylor. She just came out with a new book, and I first heard about her in 2008. She did the sixth TED Talk ever, and it was the first TED Talk to go viral. Hmm. And what it was about is she is a brain anatomist, and she was at Harvard doing research. And she woke up one morning and had a stroke. Well, she found that she was having a stroke. And the TED Talk is very entertaining. It's about 18 minutes long. And she talks about what it's like to be someone who knows about the brain and is having her left side of her brain basically go offline. So what she's discussing is, well, I don't, it's a lot of ways to go about this in a quick way for you and everybody. Um, our left side of our brain is our analytical side. It's what makes order in our life, and we need it. We need to know what we're going to do when we wake up and how to drive, and it's all of that memory stuff. Well, yeah, it's categorizing. It thinks about the past and the future. It's the left lower side of the brain is everything to keep you safe. So what's happening right now is we have an epidemic of people suffering with anxiety. Mm-hmm. It is the left side of the brain that would be in charge of something like that. It's just we're not living in balance. Um, so the right side of the brain is present moment. It is about being in the earth. It sees the big picture. It doesn't know itself as an individual, but it is big and vast and as big as the universe. And everything is one. And you know that um, yogis or Buddhists, they talk about nirvana and being one with all. And what's interesting is this is in each and every one of our own brains, but our society tends, this is Liz's take on it now, our mm-hmm. society tends to value the left, everything about the left side of the brain. So when there needs to be budget cuts for schools, they immediately cut art and gym, and music, and those are all... Oh, so they, they cut being one with the universe, one of the first things they cut? They, yeah. That's exactly what they cut. So hmm. what happens, you know, you're quite often in Buddhist or Hindu philosophy, they talk about being one, and they say that it's illusion. Our physicalness is an illusion. Well, the thing is, it's, it's, it's all of these things all at once, and our brain is trying to make order, and yet it needs to know that we're on the earth, and and we. It's hard to describe the right side because it's not the word side. Right. Um, well, I, although for those of us who are left-handed, and that's our dominant side, we can describe it just fine. It's you poor right-handed people who can't do that. So I just do yeah. want to say, 
I, I feel like I'm going to get a call from a neurologist saying, first of all, I should say, as you were talking, I remember I did see this TED Talk um, years and years and years ago. I don't remember much about it, but I did see it. Uh, and I feel like we may get a call from neurologists saying that might not be well, the most precisely great. accurate description of the role of the brain hemispheres. But, you know, it's talk radio. It doesn't have to be perfect. And right, I would. Right. I think we should close. I just got to get to some other calls here, Liz. I think sure. we should obviously remind people what the Buddhist said to the hot dog vendor. All right, Colin. Have well, a great afternoon. Well, then <laughs> you have to say, what did the Buddha say to the hot dog vendor? That's what you have to say back. Um, and the answer is, make me one with everything. Uh, okay, so here we go. We're just going to keep going, right? I don't even know. It seems like we would just go. So, <laughs> now I sound like uh, the lady in the TED Talk, 888-720-WNPR. Actually, that, that whole conversation, though, is quite relevant, obviously, for the Fetterman situation, uh, which has, keeps getting more complicated. It you know, keeps getting more – I mean, there hasn't really been an iteration in the last few days. But um, it, 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 we've been – I teach this class down at Yale. We've been talking a lot about it, how the media covers it, how people think about it. Very interesting. Okay. Um, here we go. I'm just going right down the, the chain here. This is uh, Chuck, and suitably for a chain a chain conversation, he wants to talk about, I believe, cycling. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Chuck from Chester. You're on the air. Hey, I'm not a neurologist, but we'll but you, do our best. You, you play one on television. <laughs> that was coming next. Hey, so I read with some interest your uh, monthly articles in Bicycling Magazine like 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of as a, a new cyclist at the time, I'm just been curious as to whether you've kept up cycling and what, you know, what's the deal? What, no, I, the answer is that I haven't, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit about why. So, yeah, first of all, I should say that I got approached by bicycling, by bicycling magazine. The way that I get approached for a lot of things, at least when I was doing a lot of magazine writing, which is, the, the pitch is, we know you don't know anything about this, and so we would like you to learn about it and write about it. Um, and that was, I think it was an editor, editor there named Dave Howard who approached me. And he said, just just to make sure you don't know anything about cycling, right? And I said, yes. So it was really nice. They bought me a really expensive, or they gave me money to buy a really nice road bike uh, by Felt. Uh, and, and I did a lot of biking and I went places and I wrote columns, as Chuck is saying. Well, I stopped for two reasons. The main reason is I really don't think it's a safe thing anymore. I mean, I really, at a certain point, like road biking around here, road biking in Europe, which I've now done, is, I think, pretty safe. I mean, France is a very safe place to ride a bicycle. Um, around here, I feel like somebody's going to be looking at their phone and I'm going to die. You know, somebody's going to be driving their car and looking at their phone and that's be the last you'll ever hear of me. And I just, I couldn't square that anymore as like just an activity I wanted to be involved in. I just, there's so many stories about it now. And, you know, I mean, Wolfie was doing a bunch of bicycling and she got hit by a car and it just, I don't know. that There was that. And then the other thing is that this insane dog, Declan, came into my life and he's young and he's energetic. And so most of my energy goes into entertaining Declan, you know, like it's hard for me to think of, like I own two kayaks. I haven't been in a kayak in a really long time, partly because Declan only wants me to do things that he could do too. So until he's can sit calmly in a kayak or on the back of a bicycle, which seems very unlikely, um, I won't be doing it. So anyway, I'm sorry to report that, Chuck, because I, I sense you are a cyclist. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and you know, to your first point, it's well taken, but it certainly depends on where you live or where you're able to ride. Yeah, in large part. I mean, you know, if I lived, you know, closer to a city, which Chester is anything but, right? Um, you know, it would it would I probably have a different attitude than the ability to kind of get out my door and into roads that have practically no nobody on them. Yeah, no, I, the the area where you are is beautiful and and beautiful for cycling, and I, I can see. Why it would be appealing, but I, you know, the I had sort of a daily route that I would take because I was trying to ride pretty much every day. Not you know, not a huge ride or anything, but to finish it, I had to come down Albany Avenue um, from about Steel Road in West Hartford to to Prospect, and it was terrifying. Yeah. You know, I mean, just like people were, it's like a game they're playing to see how come they can cl- how close they can come to you. So I just thought, oh, I think I'll stop doing that. But thanks for your call, Chuck. And you know, I mean, I will say this: bike trails are great. You know. And even and bike trails, even bike trails, you <laughs> occasionally have to cl- cross the road, you know that they are near. But that's fine, and you can do that pretty carefully and stuff like that. I mean, so the Simsbury bike trails and all those bike trails out there in the Farmington Valley—they're all great. The ones in the south of the state. I mean, if I were going to go back to bi- biking, and I still got my road bike, and I don't know how many bikes. <laughs> Once you get interested in cycling, you wind up owning a lot of bicycles. Um, it's just one of those things. So I think I still own two. <laughs> I haven't looked lately, but I think I still own two. And if I if I were to go back to it, I would just do it on bike trails because I think those are pretty safe. And it's a beautiful sport. You know, it's very, very nice. All right. So here we go. Uh, what time is it? Yeah, I can do another call or two and then we'll take a break. And you know how this goes. Here's Lauren in Hamden. Hi, Lauren. Hi there. This is not as highbrow a topic as neuroscience or financial policy. Um, but I wanted to talk with you about being a puppy raiser for Guiding Eyes to the Blind, which mm-hmm. is by far the most satisfying volunteer work that I've ever done. And I know that Guiding Eyes is looking right now for more puppy raisers, so it might be a great opportunity for people who are looking for a very unique sort of volunteer opportunity. Um, the puppy raiser gets the dog when they're about eight weeks old and has them till they're 16 or 17 months And they come everywhere. They come to work, they come to the grocery store, and they follow this very um, prescribed, smart, supportive program. There are regions all over Connecticut, and uh, it's guidingeyes.org, and maybe some of your listeners will be interested. So how long do you typically keep the dog? How long does the host's household? About about 14 months. You get them at eight weeks, and you have them until they're about 16 months old. And um, you don't have no vet bills, and if you go away, there's a puppy sitter, and the puppy raiser buys food and toys. And there's they're located in Yorktown Heights, New York, but in Connecticut, there are what they call raising regions. There's one in Avon Granberry, uh, Granby. I'm in Southern Connecticut. Um, there's one down in Fairfield County. There's one in Central. So let me and, ask you this. I mean. I would think that parting would be such sweet sorrow. You know, I mean, 14 months is enough time to get very attached to a dog. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I I know that they're not my dog. I'm this Right now, I have Bijou. She's the seventh dog I've raised. And it's not like having a dog die. I have a relationship with all of the dogs I've raised. I have a relationship with the blind people who they provide independence to. And when I bring the dog back, I pick up a new little seven, week, eight week old puppy in my arms, and that helps. That's a bomb for anything. Oh yeah, so, 
So, yeah, um, you just don't even let it cool off, basically. You just start no, with a new don't. one. I don't. I need to right away have another little puppy. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, well, it's a great program. What the dogs do is amazing. I mean, I'm almost amazed that the dogs can figure yeah. out. I mean, one of the things they have to do, for example, is figure out stuff that wouldn't really affect them. You know, I mean, in other words, there's a branch hanging over the sidewalk that's, you know, around five and a half feet up there. That's not something that they would ordinarily care about. But as I understand it, you know, they have to know that the blind person could walk into it. Um, I, I think that's a kind of incredible. They're, they're the highest standard of any service animal because they have to do this thing called intelligent disobedience. Every other working dog, you want them to obey every time. But a guide dog for a blind person has to take the command and see that it isn't safe and say, no, sorry, not doing that. So it takes a really, really special dog and a special relationship. Let me um, ask you this. Which, which hemisphere of the dog brain would you say does that? <laughs> the whole brain. I'm just yeah, trying to tie it all together. All also, time. do these dogs know anything about monetary policy? I'm guessing not, no matter how well you train them. Uh, I don't they think know they... they're working for treats. Okay, so this organization, would they be interested in a very energetic uh, 75-pound standard poodle? Because... Uh, they would be interested in their guide dog, which they do all their own breeding, being in a home with a very energetic. Oh, really? Okay. Well, Declan would definitely enjoy that. You know what this dog did yesterday? I just have to say, I'm going to get yelled at for all of this, what I'm about to tell you anyway, but I, I, I don't care. So we have a place that we go that's, you know, kind of a wild area that not too many people go. It's not wild, but it's a sort of kind of conservation land area, let's just say. And we go there pretty much every day, Declan and I. And so yesterday morning, if you recall, there was still snow on the ground from the Saturday snow. It's in the morning. We get there. There's only one car there. So we walk around one loop and we come back out of that loop and and there's still only one car there. And Declan's off leash and he's running around and, um, and I'm thinking, well, we'll probably see the other dog owner pretty soon. And suddenly I see this, you know, kind of medium-sized German Shepherd go running across the hill and Declan sees it and starts running towards it. And then I went, oh no. That's a coyote, actually. (laughs) So Declan chases the coyote. I've always thought of Declan as a very slow runner. I tell people that he's a slow runner because he just doesn't seem like he runs very fast. That's why that's that's how I use my brain brain hemisphere, and I say that means he's a slow runner. So, but he he chases this coyote, and he's like three feet off the tail of this coyote, all the way up a hill, like you know, easily, like let's say five football fields or something. (laughs) And I'm thinking. First of all, I hope there's not four other coyotes at the top of the hill, which sometimes happens. And I'm hoping the coyote just doesn't think, you know what, you're an idiot. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to get you. But none of that happened. And Declan came back. But it was well. I'm glad you dodged that. It was hair raising. Right <laughs> I'd like to say that Declan and I learned a valuable lesson, but I don't think either one of us did. All right. So thanks very much for that, uh, Lauren. I think that's great what you're doing. And uh, certainly willing to think about adding another uh, puppy to my household so I'll never get to ride a bike or paddle a kayak for the rest of my life. Okay, so let's take a break here. Our number, though, is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Happy to hear from you. It's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. Makes me tend to leave my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. And it's knowing I'm not shackled by forgotten words or bonds, or some ink stains that have dried upon some line. 
It just keeps you in the back roads by the rivers of my memory. Keeps you ever gentle on my mind. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. back it's ask or tell me anything anything can happen and may actually it may actually happen anything i mean all right 888-720-WNPR 888-720-9677 i'm using i just want to say something right now okay i'm using both of my brain hemispheres at once right i'm not one of these people who goes eh gonna use the left one for this one no i'm using them both at once uh, are we okay? I have to. I think this might be jumping the line a little bit, but I just there's no way I'm not going to take this call. Uh, so here's Jim in Southbury. Hi, Jim. Hi, Colin. Hey, really enjoyed the show. I think uh, a lot of listeners would uh, welcome a show to sort of reboot or update on the UFO phenomenon after everything that happened last year. You had a major congressional hearing, but I would think it might be interesting just to sort of to probe the weirdness of sometimes when you hear official responses. And there's one, one in particular that struck, struck me over the last year or two when I saw the response um, to the Nimitz uh, videos, which most you and most of your listeners will, will remember. Um, you know, these were images caught by, you know, fighter pilots uh, that finally came out, I think, to the New York Times. They're the, the most seen images. And they, you, these are high-tech instruments that caught uh, heat signatures and, you know, detected what, uh, for all intents and purposes, we can say are physical objects, essentially um, seeming to break the the, the laws of um, physics as we know them. And what the weirdness of it was at the time, I remember Leon Panetta being interviewed and saying, like, well, you know, these could be Chinese drones. We don't really know. And the oddness of that reply uh, and the insufficiency of it, and even in the hearings last year, uh, there were senators and congressmen who were like, questioning the two witnesses that the government put forth um, and saying, you haven't heard of this or that account. And so I, I think it's always a fascinating subject. We'd love to 
see you guys do the show about it again. All right. Maybe probe. Not to not to poke a hair a uh, hole in your surveillance balloon, but we actually did a show on UFOs Wednesday of last week. So uh, oh, I totally missed. It. So that's how I'm recently sorry. we've done it. We have done by our reckoning since 2017. We've done a total of four shows about UFOs. Oh, um, I told your producer this is probably old news. So. Um, well, I mean, the way that I, I, I do want to say this because I also I got an email from a dissatisfied person about the show that we did. I mean, you have to sort of cut, keep rethinking this. So all of the stuff that you just described, you know, about the you know the UAPs as they now call them, and um, and the things that the Navy pilots t- saw, I feel like that has all been pretty well covered. Uh, and really, there's sort of an arc that we did a show in 2017. It was in early 2017, and it was like nobody really was taking UFOs seriously at all. And that we we got pushback from listeners saying this is not appropriate for public radio. This is a bunch of you know Fox Mulder hocus pocus. Um, and so so that was early 2017. December of 2017 is when the New York Times. I think it was Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal. Leslie Kane had been on that show earlier in the year. Did that first big, huge exposure, uh, page one New York Times story uh, about the fact that there, in fact, were government programs, was a major government program being kept under wraps that was essentially what we think of as Project Blue Book. Um, and so suddenly this wasn't such a big joke anymore and it wasn't so inappropriate. And since then, I mean, I think the whole thing has become progressively more legitimized as a topic. And we, so we've done stories, uh, uh, we've done shows, excuse me, episodes uh, about some of the other iterations of that, including what you're talking about right now with the Navy pilots, all that stuff. And so the show that we did last week was a little bit more about the transformation of attitudes. It wasn't about the testimony or the evidence or anything like that, because I, we f- feel like that's now a matter of record. We've done episodes, but also there's just a lot of mainstream coverage of that. But that whole idea that people think about this differently, you are no longer necessarily going to be considered a nut uh, if this is something that you believe in and care about. So uh, to me, that's very interesting. Uh, all right. So thank you so much uh, for your call, even though you didn't listen to our show last week. But now you have something to look forward to. You go and you you subscribe to our podcast feed, uh, which if, you, if you're not already following us uh, as a podcast, you should be. Uh, and you can hear that whole thing. OK. Um, all right. So James in Hamden has been working, uh, has been online for quite a while or on hold for quite a while. I seem to have lost the power of coherent speech at the moment, but I'm sure it will, it will return. Uh, James in Hamden. Hi, what's on your mind? Howdy. Um, this is about uh, how we're trying to upgrade our world climate by getting rid of statues and plaques to people who were advocates of slavery and otherwise unworthy of our of our uh, memorialization. Uh, but in my own town, Hamden, one of the three main streets is dedicated to uh, one of the most virulent advocates for um, slavery, and beyond that, the national president of the Anti-Catholic League of his time, and his name is Samuel Morris. Uh, so we all know uh, about the Morse code, mm-hmm. but we don't we don't realize that that there was a, a morality behind that that we can, would probably consider unworthy of our attentions. 
Right. So th- this is a, a really interesting one. I mean, I'm totally in sympathy with what you're saying right now and his anti-Catholic stuff and his pro-slavery stuff. I mean, makes him a very strong candidate for denaming and, and other kinds of kind of cancellations, so to speak. It's always, you know, it's tough, too, because this is also somebody who had a really, really profound effect uh, on American society. The way that we li- lived and thought during those years w- was transformed by the telegraph. Uh, and so it's kind of like, yeah. On the, on the other hand, there's obviously something very appalling about what his ideas were. So I always feel like I, I don't know what to do with it about the name of a road. If it were a statue or something else, my feeling is you could at least in his case – it's a little bit different from case to from case to case, from person to person, from historical figure. You could make a case for just contextualizing, just saying, "Okay, here's why we have something named after Samuel Morse, and here's why we're not happy uh, about Samuel Morse, and here's the, what you need to understand the whole picture." You know, and I, I would consider doing that. I don't know if it was like a statue at the state capitol or something of Samuel Morse. That's what I would do. Is he from Hamden? Is that why? Uh, is, what is his connection to Hamden? Mm. Uh, I live a, I live uh, on the street that is parallel to. Yeah, but what is it? Did he live there? Was he from there? I'm I'm looking. I don't know. I'm looking. There is no earthly reason why uh, there should be a street named uh, after him in Hamden. So I don't know. I'm not a radical about these kinds of things. I'm always sort of looking for a way. I'm, uh, I I tend to want to, particularly as I get older. I tend to want to look into the gray area and see if there's sort of an interesting way to deal with this. Uh, because there really are kind of two parts of the story. His political slash personal views uh, are and were appalling. Uh, on the other hand, his impact is enormous um, or was enormous. So, you know, I mean, but on the other hand, if he's not really from Hamden, if he never lived in Hamden, there's no earthly reason why there needs to be a street named after him. So anyway, good luck with all that. Um, I mean, I think it's healthy that we have these conversations. I'll just quickly say this. So I went to Yale University from 1972 to 1976, and there's a residential college at Yale called, there was, called Calhoun College. And I never really gave it a thought. I just thought there's a place called Calhoun. I didn't know who it was named after. It been named after Rory Calhoun for all I knew. I just never gave it any thought whatsoever. And because just like, you know, walking around, going to stuff at the college. Um, the residential colleges are sort of where people live. And... So I don't know. It was much, much later after I got out of college that I realized it was named after John C. Calhoun, which is, you know, that's really bad. And I wound up writing this article for Salon that seemed to kind of re-trigger a conversation that had been had several times about this. And ultimately, this time, the name was stripped off the college. The college was renamed. And, and so for three of the four years that I lived at Yale, my roommate – was a black man. And so I, and we're still in touch. We're still friends. And I got in touch with them. You've heard me say, tell this story before, some of you, but I got in touch with them. And I said, Ken, did we know when we were there that Calhoun College was named after John C. Calhoun? And so I'm left handed. Uh, Ken is both black and left handed. And so his answer to me was, you know, Colin, you know how when you're left handed, you notice things that don't work for left-handed people. You just be, you're just like a lot more aware of a soup ladle or a pair of scissors or something like that that doesn't work. Because being black is kind of, kind of like that. So yes, we black people were aware that that college was named after John C. Calhoun. So you know, and and I think that 
does strike me as wildly inappropriate. Uh, and I'm very glad the name was stripped off. All right. So we got time for. Okay. So oh, I, wanted, I do want to talk about this. I do want to talk about this to Rick. Rick from Guilford, you have the floor. Yeah. Hi, Colin. Thank you very much. I wanted to um, talk about a most wonderful, very unusual uh, movie called E.O. That is the letters E followed by O. Right. This is the donkey movie. Yes. E.O. is the name of the donkey. Um, And the movie is about a journey that the donkey... Uh, goes on for an hour and a half or so, and uh, there are a number of sub-themes, but maybe the most powerful is... No spoilers. Animal... I'm sorry? Don't do a spoiler, but if you want to characterize it, it's fine. But don't say... Oh, yes, yes. Uh, So... um, the journey of a donkey who um, leaves uh, human domination, human civilization, and um, goes on this journey uh, more or less on his own. Maybe I should stop there because I don't want to spoil it. All right. Uh, so I, I, I will tell you this. I'm aware of this movie. I feel like donkeys are having a bad year. I think donkeys are having a very bad year in the movies. Um, oh. If, uh, if, um, if you've seen The Banshees of Ed Sheeran, um, yeah, bad, bad time for sure. donkeys. If you've seen Triangle of Sadness, very bad time for donkeys there too. So I'm, I'm, no. I'm apprehensive. I'm apprehensive about going to see another donkey movie. I cannot stand to see another, another donkey suffer. Um, so we, we actually were discussing EO for this coming Friday's nose episode and, (laughs) and it's, of course, instead of doing EO, we're doing women talking, which is about like just, you know, even more horrible kinds of cruelty directed at human beings. But, um, but I mean, I'm intrigued, but I'm a little donkeyed out right now to tell you the truth. Like I, the donkey scene in Triangle of Sadness, very hard for me. Uh, and I love that little donkey in the Banshees of Ed Sheeran, uh, and I just I don't know I I need time to heal my donkey soul, uh, my my bottom so to speak my inner bottom, uh, which is located to the left of my right hemisphere of my brain, uh, needs a little time to heal and scab over uh, scab over. Um, all right, so we're gonna take a little break here. But thank you for the movie recommendation, and we will take a break. Our number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Goodbye, morning, Time to say a few words of thanks. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. She's not involved in the planning of our UFO shows. 
there was somebody who wrote to me over the weekend who seemed to feel that his dissatisfaction with our UFO show could be traced to the handiwork of Cat Pastor. That is incorrect. That's not what she does. Uh, and Jonathan McPants, uh, producer for the Colin McEnroe Show, is in the house keeping everything run and picked out, helped pick out the music or get the music all set up for today. And now he's screening calls and all that kind of stuff. We have lots of interesting stuff. You know what I'm doing after, right after this show is I'm taping one segment for an upcoming episode we have about exclamation points. And I'm perhaps fittingly, very excited about the show. <laughs> um, but uh, partly because in my own life, exclamation points have been somewhat controversial, and you'll hear all about that. But we got lots of fun stuff coming up, and we're going to try, we're trying to put together on the fly for Wednesday a sort of three years into COVID show. I think there's a lot to be said, uh, and we've done a lot of COVID shows. And so, yeah, we got all kinds of things. And so, the, oh, I know I was going to say, so on Friday to to sort of echo a little bit of Rick's call, we're going to talk about Women Talking, uh, this is the Sarah Polly movie, and then we're also going to talk about The Consultant, which has Christoph Waltz in there as a consultant who shows up, and uh, he's not a nice man. Uh, all right, so uh, here we go. I'm the only person, by the way, who thinks that I do a credible Christoph Waltz impersonation, but I'm not going to let that stop me. Uh, all right, here we go. We're going to go to the top here, and we're going to go to Matthew in East Hartford. Hi, Matthew. Hello, Colin. How are you? Just fine. A little upset you haven't had me in your Christmas writings uh, in the past couple of years. Well, I'll remedy that as quickly as possible. (laughs) Um, I just wanted to call today because I have to get something off my chest about, um, you know, before Dad died and before I ran, um, you know, he had taken out a home equity loan uh, when Countrywide was, uh, you know, basically destroying the housing market in the United States. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, they, uh, you know, he died, of course. Uh, Angelo, you mean? That guy? Uh, no, my dad, Walter. This is, oh, y- this is former candidate for the United States Senate. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so uh, basically what happened is I, I pay, I've been paying faithfully for 14 years on the, the, the loan, and um, it, they, I didn't know there was a balloon payment attached until 2017. And now uh, Mr. Uh-oh. Cooper and of New York Mellon, uh, want uh, the $66,000 balloon payment. But the issue is, for me anyway, that it was predatory to get a... Uh, the loan was for $80,000. Between my mother and myself, we've paid $133,000 on it already, and they still want another $66,000. So, you know, the thing for me is that these countrywide mortgage, those the, the subprime... Uh, uh, stuff that happened back then is still destroying families. That's terrible. Um, d- now, my recollection, doesn't Bank of America own, didn't they buy uh, Countrywide? Yes, they did. And, you know, I, I've actually been in touch. I'm trying to track down, um, you know, how the certificates got to uh, Bank of New York Mellon, but no yeah. one will answer that question. Well, stuff is um, just packaged and resold all the time. I mean... Uh, yeah, I, yeah. yeah, but but it, so so first of all, I'm so sorry to hear that. I actually had a loan like that um, that was issued by a predatory lending institution called Yale University. They had this thing called the tuition. <laughs> post- now, I'm not kidding. They had a thing called the tuition postponement option that was almost impossible to pay off. It was designed to be impossible to pay off. There was eventually a page one story in the Wall Street Journal about how bad this was, and they were so embarrassed that they just sunsetted the program. They they let some of us make like one exactly. final payment. They actually let us make yeah. the balloon payment in balloons. They said, just send us as many balloons uh, as you can find and <laughs> and we'll, well call it square. Know, 
I would bring that up with New York Mellon. See, just say, would you like if I gave you a lot of balloons? Would you go away? I know spy balloons. You know, maybe <laughs> if I released a couple of them over. Um, you know, the thing is that we're not. You know, we're not trying to get out of the payments or anything. We just want to go back to the payments, but they won't even modify. Right. And so they've sent it over here to some lawyers in Farmington to start foreclosure. So now you know oh. we're trying to fight that. Holy moly! Uh, oh, it's really bad. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or whatever it is. Yeah. That, that's completely impotent um, governmental agency, just so you all know. They actually let the, the, the lending institutions and the loan servicers investigate themselves. I'm going to so. tell, I'm going to, you know what we have here now, Matthew? We have yeah. an accountability project. You should talk to oh, Walter. Really? You should talk to Walter Smith Randolph, uh, Randolph about this. We have an accountability project. They're like sixty minutes, and something else rolled into one. I was trying to think of another thing. I was trying to think of another thing off the top of my head. They're like sixty minutes, and Sherlock Holmes rolled into one. That's what the accountability project is like. So yeah, Walter Smith Randolph. He runs the whole thing. I would get in touch. This might be a big story because it is. It does have like kind of a kinetic angle, as Matthew was alluding to. This actually did uh, somewhat controversially damage the political career of uh, Senator Christot. So, um, so anyway, um, I hope you, I hope you do that, Matt. You should get. That's that's why we have it. It's an investigative unit, and they are. That's their new branding. I've just rebranded the Accountability Project. There's 60 Minutes and Sherlock Holmes wrapped into a single unit. Um, all right, let's go to. All right, well, we just have two calls left, and that's probably about how much time we have left, too. Here's Dave in Hartford. Hi, Dave. Hey, Colin. How you doing? Just fine. I, Colin, I wanted to make you and your listeners aware of a really great website that I came across, and it's called HistoryChip.com. Just as it sounds. H-I-S-T-O-R-Y-C-H-I-P, no space, dot com. And in a way, this is kind of a follow-up to the call you took from Gene from Hampton about Samuel Morris. Because, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I learned history from books where there were all these things handed down pretty much according to the political, cultural, economic imperatives of the time, mostly told by people in power, mostly white guys. And, uh, for example, in the Jim Crow South, you'd look at the textbooks and all the slaves were happy. We're being kept uh, nicely on the plantations and having a great life. And, and so the idea of history chip is not to destroy the history that's out there, but to build it from the bottom up and be ultimately inclusive. Anybody can go to, to this site, and, and you really should check it out, and you can add a story. I added a story. I even provided gratis some voiceover for, for some of the stories were there so they could be in audio form. You can go on it. You can add a story uh, printed, or you can, you can record it. It can be about any aspect of your life or somebody that you know. So the idea is you gather stories from people all around the world, potentially, and you fill in all the gaps of history. You build it from the bottom up from first-person accounts, and don't just settle for what we have that is just the bare bones that only begins to tell the story. Yeah, um, no, I'm, so, I'm on the site right now. It looks really, really interesting. There does not appear to be really a snack. It uh, doesn't appear to be a snack food associated with it. Although I think history, no, history no. chips and dip is, is something that they could do as kind of a little fundraising tool here. But I, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. I didn't really have that experience because I was adopted uh, and raised by Howard Zinn. Um, I was left by the roadside at Howard's Inn, pulled over and said, would you like to come and live with me and learn that Columbus was not so nice? Uh, and a lot of other stuff like that. So I, I just had a very different experience as a child, which I think probably explains my acumen. That 
and my highly developed brain hemispheres. All right, last call of the day, Nathaniel. Here you go from Lisbon, Hello. calling direct from Portugal. It's Nathaniel. <laughs> A little closer than that. Hey, yeah, um, I've uh, been listening to you know NPR for. National, you know, public radio for a long time, and uh, I get a, I hear a lot of stuff. And um, I heard the other day that there was a um, over at Central, there was a big uh, meeting. Uh, there were many uh, people there, and they were talking about the economy and about education. And, and uh, it occurred to me that I, I had uh, I've been thinking about it a while. I know recently the uh, state universities, uh, specifically the Community colleges have been talking about making associate degrees uh, at no cost. They've been discuss- discussing that with uh, for students, mm-hmm. and uh, m- m- I was thinking, since you know, there's so much talk about you know, education, making it you know, keeping it affordable, boosting the Connecticut economy. Uh, that's always a, you know, a hot topic, you know, and it, it occurred to me that a lot of students. Um, do take long, you know, they have to take longer to get a four-year degree because they have to work and, 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 uh, you know, they can't always concentrate hundred percent on study. I know, but I've been commuting for, for a long time. I'm a perpetual commuting student close, close to my bachelor's degree, but yeah, I've been some more supporting myself for years. And, uh, I was thinking if I, there's always a way, you know, if you get on a brain about it, if you could figure out how to get, how to streamline um, something is kind of, I'm trying to formulate the idea. If you could make bachelor's degrees, mm-hmm. um, since that's almost pretty soon, that's going to be the new high school diploma. Mm-hmm. If it isn't already, it, you know, because of the competition. Um, it seems to me that if there was an incentive. I think kids sometimes just need more incentive. Um, right. So we're going to have to wrap this up because we're just, we're just out of time. I, I do feel as though, first of all, you're right that there's this kind of goalpost moving that's going on with degrees. Uh, for a long time, the community college system has been the most visible ladder socioeconomically in America. I hope it's still working reasonably well. But we have to stop there. Thanks for doing Ask or Tell Me Anything. Thanks to Mr. Big Pants for, uh, you know, the stuff that he does and Cat Pastor for things that she does. I sound like I don't know what anybody does, and that's not actually the case.